Hello, family and friends, and welcome to the Word for the World podcast, where we preach truth to heal your soul. I'm your host, Jesse Glass, and today we're going to be talking about Malachi again. This is part four. And in this section of Malachi, our part four, the name uh, subtitle is No Gods Before Me. And we really look at this issue that God is having with the Israelite people at the time of Malachi. And we left off uh, last time with the uh, the fallen shepherds that they have uh, not done their duty and kept the people... Uh, fed and spiritually alive and really have taken advantage of them and kind of forced them and made them stumble at the law of God. So when you look at this, this next part, God is now speaking to Everybody, this isn't, he's not just mad at the uh, priests this time. And uh, this section is going to be a little tough. Uh, There's a lot to unpack here, and there's some traditional thoughts in this section that really have to um, look at and find the reality and the truth of what it means. There are some mistranslations uh, in the King James Bible. And you have to remember that every Bible, every version, has its issues. They have different things that don't, they didn't get quite right. And the uh, scholars at the time when the King James Bible was being uh, compiled and translated, they already had several, uh, had made several attempts to have an English Bible. You had uh, Wycliffe and you had uh, uh, the Geneva Bible was actually very fresh and it hadn't been out for all that long relatively. But uh, you have to remember that the King James Bible was translated by men who had a certain point of view. And they liked to color, as everybody does, their work from their perspective. So you have to look at this thing through the eyes of God and not through the point of view of a traditional mindset. And there are many places in the King James Bible where they kind of rearrange phrases and words to make things um, fit a little better their sensibilities and their narrative of what they think that God is saying and doing. Now, I'm not saying that the knowledge of God was lost But I am saying that the ones that were in power in the positions of authority in the church, especially at this time, did not really have the will of God and the mind of God um, in their heart. They didn't really care too much. Uh, if If you'll go back in history just a little bit, before James... You had Elizabeth, and then you had Henry VIII. And Henry VIII, um, he was a trained theologian. He enjoyed uh, reading and, and understanding things about God, and, or really rather Scripture. But he was a tyrant, and he married a woman that was his brother's wife, 
after his brother was killed uh, because he wasn't actually in line for the throne. His older brother was. And so when his older brother died, they had to have this union between England and Spain still. So his father said, here, you know, take, take your brother's wife. So he does. And they, they can't have children and they can't have, he can't have a male heir. And that's a big deal because in those days you needed to have a son to pass on the, the Royal line. And so that the kingdom would be secure. And he, he gets in, in his idea, you know, he's got a bunch of mistresses and things and he gets in his thought that he wants to divorce this first wife and so he sends a, a thing to the Pope and asks him for a divorce and the Pope says no. So basically to make a really long story short, Henry says, well, all right, we're going to separate from you and I'm going to be the head of my own church. I'm going to be the sovereign over the church of England and I'll give myself a divorce. So then you had this constant battle between Protestant and Catholic, and they were warring back and forth at who was going to get the upper hand here. And then you had uh, Queen Mary, they call her Bloody Mary, because she was killing Protestants so fast that you know your head would spin. And then Elizabeth, when she come along after Mary was taken, she didn't, you know, she wasn't really nice either. And then King James, he was a Catholic. So you had, you had uh, Henry VIII, who was not a anything really, but he said he was the sovereign uh, pope of his own church of England, that he was supreme authority um, just so he could get a divorce. And then you had his daughter, Mary, his first daughter. She was a devout Catholic and wanted to bring England back to the quote-unquote true faith. And then you had Queen Elizabeth, who was a Protestant, and she did a lot of things, you know, to kind of bring it back and forth. And then you have King James, who was a Catholic. So you have to look at who was, uh, first of all, commissioned the, the Bible and who was translating it, and what was the prevailing ideology of the time. So certain things, when you go and read the original text, and you know you have to read it from the original Hebrew, languages are funny because it'll be kind of outside of our grammar, and it won't make sense if you read it word for word. But if you take the context and you look at how these different things happen, then you can then you can really um, start to understand what it means. And the King James Bible gets very close, and is dead on in a lot of cases, and in most cases actually. But there are a few places where they didn't really know what to make of this and there was uh this bias over certain issues that they would word it in such a way that it would more fit their narrative rather than what the actual words meant So today we're going to look in Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to go from verse 10 to verse 16. I've got a lot of reading to do, um, and I, I, I know that a lot of times it's boring just to hear somebody read the Bible, and I, I cut out as much as I can here and there to kind of make this more expedient, but the point is there are many things in the scripture that are very important to know and understand for context and for just getting 
the whole story together. So, um, and I'm going to stop and explain where the, where this, this happens here, where it, it kind of diverts from the original thought that was being, uh, the original thought that was being uh, conveyed at the time. So if, if you want, let's go into chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of strange gods. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacle of Jacob. And him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and is thy wife of thy covenant. And did he, and did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now here is where we get into some translational issues. The King James Bible really kind of doesn't make sense the way they have it. I mean, it, it makes sense, but it doesn't fit the rest of the, the, the Bible in the same way. But when you look at it, you look at other translations that fit what the actual... Hebrew words were, it says this, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord of God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is really the, the main intent of this scripture. Now, it's been used... From the King James perspective, for many years, as being a blanket uh, condemnation of all divorce. And that's not what it is. Because, the, see, the King James says, For the Lord God of Israel saith that he hateth putting away. Putting away your wife, divorcing. For one covereth violence with his garment. Now, that doesn't make any sense, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Okay? So, this section here, and there's a reason that I'm saying these things, because I've gone in and I've looked at the original text, I've looked at what the actual word is, and what he's talking about. So, 
directly translates. It says, for he hates to divorce, says the Lord. That's not, doesn't mean the same thing as what we think it does. But the verb hate, and I'm going to read some things I've copied down here, and divorce most likely identifies the man who is the subject of the main clause later in the verse, where it says covers his garment with violence. In this context, it is better better translated this way. For he who hates his wife to the point that he divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. Now, when you look at the word hates here in the Hebrew, it is shna. And I know I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, and if there are any uh, of the Hebrew listening, any Jews that know what it is, I'm sorry for butchering your language, but this is the best I can do. So it says, he hates. Now, what's really interesting is that when you look at Malachi chapter 1 and verse 3, you see that another word comes up, and it's shnate. And it says, I hate, because he says, I hate, have I not hated, I hated Esau. So here we see a different word for God referring to himself than here where God is referring to someone else. So God is referring to another person, he who is divorcing his wife because he hates her. He is a hater. You know, we we, uh, we have that term now, don't be a hater. But he, what it's saying is that as a hater, as somebody who hates, you are willing to do these things. And when you look at the context of what he's talking about, says that third person context, he hates, is the key point. If God is the subject of the verb and God is speaking, why does not he say, I hate divorce? God is not the subject of the verb. The subject is he who is he, the person who despises his wife to whom he has committed himself, divorces her, and finds a pagan, foreign wife, he is the subject of this verse. Now, this is right. It says it does not change the fact that God hates this kind of divorce that is going on in this situation. A man leaving his wife for another woman or vice versa. But there is no blanket statement in this verse that governs all our decisions on divorce or all our discussions on divorce. It seems that what is arousing the ire of God here is the infidelity of the Israelite men, not only that they are leaving their wives, but they would soon be worshiping Canaanite gods. And that is the focus of this passage. So what's interesting is that you have these people that are translating the Bible in a time where the predominant ruler of the country was of the impression and of the mind that the divorce from King Henry's first wife, Henry VIII's first wife, was not scriptural and it was not sanctioned by the church. So when it comes into this kind of context, they kind of nudge it a little bit off center and put it where they would rather it be. 
And this is something that people do all the time. Uh, I know many, I know, have known many preachers who would get up and they do this and they find scriptures that fit closer to what they think it ought to be. And they don't uh, consider the translation. So if I come across a place where the translation is uh, confusing to me, confusing as in that it doesn't feel like that it fits with who I believe and know God to be, um, then I take it and I look at different translations. And then I, I look at the actual words that it was written in originally, because when I do that, then I can kind of start to see a broader picture of this. And most of the time when I do this, I find that really the King James is just saying it in, in a different way, but it means the same thing. And you have to allow for that because the King James Bible is, you know, over 400 years old at this point. And they, they talked a whole lot differently uh, 50 years ago than we do today. So language changes very often and, and it's fluid. So you have to look at this as a, this is just their way of expressing themselves, expressing what they see in the scripture. Um, so when you come to a newer translation, and most of the newer translations have it this way, you start to understand that this is this means something else. And when you look at the original Hebrew words for different things, God is not speaking about himself here. He is talking about another person. So this is the, the last bit. I'm going to put this out here because this is not the point of my message or this uh, episode is not that God is okay with divorce. No, what I'm saying is the truth of this scripture is that God hates this kind of divorce where men are leaving their wives just so that they can have another wife and then go off and worship another God. Okay. So this is what he's angry about. Not div divorce in general, because we know when we get to the New Testament, we see there's several clauses that allow someone who's being abused and mistreated to get out of that relationship. And if you want to go and listen to more of that, I've got an episode. It's called Wives Submit Even If It Kills You. And there I go into this um this subject, but the subject matter today is that God is mad at Israel for going after strange gods. The divorce thing is just kind of the icing on the cake here. It's a means to an end, and the end is to leave God. So, God has warned Israel several times about doing this and that he is uh, not, not happy with them when they do this. It says, uh, Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. So when Judah is the, the, the kingdom that they're in, it's the Israelites, the the Hebrews, the Jews, they are leaving God and marrying the daughter of a strange God. So they are being pulled away. And this isn't the first time in uh, Israel's history that this happened. In fact, one of the uh, greatest thought of kings of Israel was guilty of this very same thing, and God was upset with him about it too. So if you'll go with me to 1 Kings in chapter 11, we're going to see 
in this story what it is that God is looking at. In verse 1, it says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Zidonians, and the Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it is come to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from him and the Lord, uh, from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but, but he kept not that which God had commanded him. So here you see, if you go way back and you look in, in the, uh, the books and the Torah, you'll see that God says, don't take these people, don't take those people, and don't take these people. And this has led a lot of people in a lot of uh, ways to think about things, but we'll get to that. But for now, we're just going to say, okay, you're not allowed to, to marry these types of people. You're not allowed to go after these types of people. Now, when it says that Solomon and his wives, he built temples for all his for his wives. Okay, he had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. All right, so we're, we're looking at a thousand here, and if he built just a, a temple for uh. 10% of them, he had 100 temples to build. And probably, I don't know, it, I don't know if it tells us how many temples he actually built, but it's enough, right? 10, 1% of that number, just 1% of that number is 10, and 10 temples to other gods where these people can go and worship their gods and do all their crazy stuff. Um, is uh, uh, is too much, and Molech, he's the guy that uh, they like to sacrifice babies to. So that's a thing. And God, he had a just and righteous way of dealing with his people and how the people were supposed to conduct themselves to toward one another and toward life and how to be a uh, steward or uh, to tend the earth and how to uh, be a conscientious observer, not observer, um, ugh, words. Anyway, to, to treat the land and the animals and, and everything in a such a way that it would cause the earth to produce more and more and treat people in such a way that they would 
be happy and, and joyful and, and, you know, well, you treat people right, they're going to like you, you know. Well, not everybody. Some people are just mean and they're, and they're not going to like you, but that's be- not because of you. That's because there's something wrong inside of them that they can't like you. Um, but, you know, if you go out at Walmart or uh, other stores, I know there are other stores. I just don't seem to get to those. Um, you go out in the stores and go find a stranger and they could have a sour look on their face and you say something nice to them. Most of the time they'll smile at you. Sometimes they won't, but most of the time they're, they're nice. They understand you're being nice to them. So this was the way God wanted his people to conduct himself in the earth was to be kind to one another, to take care of each other, to, to take care of the land, to take care of the animals. And this is what the laws were all about, and to point to Jesus. Because Jesus was going to fulfill all these things. So when you look at these other gods and these other worship, it wasn't just that, oh, well, God is uh, God's just jealous, and, and he, he doesn't like it if you worship another god. And it was because in the worship of these other gods, there was human sacrifice. There were uh, uh, certain rites that I can't, I don't feel comfortable saying out loud and, you know, on the internet. But, you know, let's just put it this way. They were making a lot of, of uh, you know, they, they really loved each other a lot. And so all of this immorality was tied up with the worship of these other gods. And it was contrary to what God had commanded his people to do. So it wasn't about, oh, well, you know, he's going and worshiping another god, which you should never do anyway. But it was destructive to the nation of Israel. And if we move on, we're going to look at another place where this sort of thing is happening. And I'm not going to read this whole thing because I'm already running, you know, time short here. If we go to Nehemiah in chapter 13, in this, um, we're going to start at verse 1. I'm just going to read a little bit here. It says, On the day that they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. But it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. So here, here comes some, uh, some of that stuff I was talking about. So they separated out the the Moabites and the Ammonites and said, you know, okay, you're actually by our law not allowed to be here. And so what's happened when it says mixed multitude, he's talking about foreigners. Let's get rid of the foreigners. Okay. But why is he getting rid of the foreigners? It's because of this thing that we talked about with Solomon as they bring their strange gods in. And then these ideas start to come out and their worship starts to be a destruction to the people and to the land. You know, if you, if you read some of the, uh, the accounts of what worship of, of some of these gods is like, uh, they're all depraved i mean it's it's horrendous
I mean, there's a reason that, well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but so God is commanding his people again, you know, be ye separate. Don't, don't take in after their gods. Well, I want you to, to remember that, but I want you to hold it on the back burner for a little bit. Okay, so in Nehemiah, he's coming into Israel, and he is seeing all the corruption that's going on, and he's putting a stop to it. He's telling, you know, you, you're, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, we need to do this, and we need to do that, and this is, this is corrupt, and that is corrupt. And so he comes in and really kind of cleans house. So in the the next part of it, there's these two guys that's uh, Elishib and Tobiah, and basically Elishib took all of the stores of the tithes out of the temple and gave his his family Tobiah a place to live in the temple, and this is a big no-no. And so so if we look here in uh, look in verse 7 it says and it came to Jerusalem and understood that the evil of the evil that Ishalib uh Elishib, oh man these these names Elishib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chamber, and Tither brought I again the vessel of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. So, this was not just about getting the guy out of there. You know, I talked about treating people correctly in according to the law. Um, tithing was a thing that they did, not because, you know, churches have kind of messed tithing up really bad. Is you got to give 10% of your money to the church. That's not really what tithing is about. Tithing was about giving the 10th to the uh, the uh, Levites, the priesthood, so that they could have a living. But also the priests were to give a 10%, a tithe, to all those who were poor and uh, fatherless and widowed. So there's, there's a, a whole thing here. And this storehouse of offering was emptied for this guy so that that offering to the poor and the and the widow and the fatherless was not happening it wasn't going on while this guy was living there because there was no place for it to happen so he's saying that they're neglecting this whole situation and then you look in the next section it's uh in verse 10, it says, And I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. So what he's saying is they weren't getting what they were owed in the law because And I'll go into this a little deeper uh, in, a, in an upcoming thing, but I want to I want to take this and look. It isn't just that the Levites aren't getting their money; they ain't getting paid. No, they're not getting food. They're not getting to eat. They have to stop working in the temple and go out and work in the fields so that they can survive. And that was not what God had for them because God set them up as an inheritance for uh, the tithing was their inheritance because they were not to have any land because they had a lot of work to do in the temple. 
And the next thing that they did in Nehemiah was, in those days, in verse 15, I in Judah some I saw in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and ladening asses and also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There were men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah. In Jerusalem, then I contended with the noble of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is it that thou that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? And says, Did not your fathers thus? And did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to uh, began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not open it till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants set I at the gate that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do it, do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth, they came no more on the Sabbath. So, and he says, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should be, that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath. They remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according thy great mercy. So, here you see another condition of what happens when you're not paying attention to what God wants. So the Sabbath is a holy day. You're you're not to work on the Sabbath. You don't buy things. You don't you don't you only get to walk so far. You know, and according to their tradition, that's not really in the Bible. But on the Sabbath day is a day of rest, and it's a time for you to remember that God has a rest for you and that he rested on the Sabbath day. So it's a time to remember what God is and what he's done and leave it all in his hands. And this was not the people's thought at all. They were about about making money. They were about trade and all those things. This was not what was on their mind. And now we're going to go down into verse 23. And this section changes a little bit. And we see what the cause of all these things that have happened in Israel that are no good, what the cause is. It says, in those days, Also I saw Jews that married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. It says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by doing these things? So he's saying, You've already 
you've already uh we already know what happens when we do these things. I think it's funny that he plucks their hair out. It's just I've never had that happen. I've been in trouble before, but nobody's ever pulled my hair out. <laughs> oh, but uh you know, sometimes people do things that are outlandish, but they're doing them for the right reasons. And, you know, it, it's, I just think it's funny. It says, yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did out... <laughs> Outlandish women cause to sin. Now, this this word outlandish is not uh, the same as I just used a minute ago. Outlandish means foreigner, outland-ish. You know, they're outside. He married foreigner women that made him sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil? to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives. And one of the sons of that guy, jo- Joida, and the sons of uh, Elishib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Shabalanite, or whatever, <laughs> I'm sorry, and the Horonite, therefore I chased them from me, so he's he's really like going after these people. It says, Remember them, O God, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business. And for the wood offering at times, at times appointed, and for the fr- first fruits, remember me, oh my God, for good. So, what he's saying here is that he he run out all the corrupt priests because this uh, Ishalib, the high priest, he was the one that let his, uh, I think it's nephew, live in the temple and made the temple a dwelling place for this guy when it has nothing to do with being a dwelling place. It's all about worship. It's where God, his glory, would meet his people, where he would meet his people as the tent of meeting and the the uh, tabernacle. And then so it the temple takes over that that place. And so what we see here is the problem is this marrying of strange women or strange peoples that have strange gods. Now, if we go back into Leviticus 18 and 26, it says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither neither." any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourn among you. Now, what he's talking about is the abominations of worshiping other gods. So this is the problem here. It is not the foreigners, okay? In the way that, you know, racist people talk about foreigners. This is not God's idea that, they're bad because they're not Israelites or they're bad because they're not Jews. It isn't that. It is they are corrupt because they worship a false god. And in that worship of a false god, they do all of these things that are abominable to God. They're abominations. They sacrifice children. They wife swap. They get together and have, you know, uh, wild parties and all of these things that are no, no good for, for humans. They, they eat things that would, you know, it would put hair on your, you know, stuff that your face and things 
even if you're a lady, because it's just, it's not worth eating. But they do it because it's a part of their worship. They drink blood, and that's something that God says, you know, don't do. That was actually something that in the New Testament that uh, the Jews and the Gentiles got together and agreed. says, okay, you don't, don't eat things sacrificed to idols and don't drink blood. Don't eat, you know, things with blood in them. These were the two things that they could, you know, if you don't do those things, then we can get along. And so these are the things that God has told us not to do. So it is not this idea of having um, foreigners or marrying people outside of race or these things. It has nothing to do with that. And I'm going to show you exactly why. So if you go to the next chapter in Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 33, it says, If a stranger, which is a foreigner, sojourn, which lives with you, stays with you, sojourn with you in your land, you shall not vex him. You're not going to make it hard on him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and you shall love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this commandment is about strangers and how they are to be treated. This is something that is all, all the time overlooked, that God want, you know, we, we have this idea that Jews hated Gentiles and, and, then, they, and then they hated the half-breeds and all this stuff. That, that might have been a, a prejudice of the people, but God never had that prejudice. The thing that concerned God always was, what are you worshiping? Because if you have a stranger that lives with you in your land, they're following your laws. They, are, they have taken your customs and they are living your way, your law, which was given by God, and they've acknowledged your God, and they're worshiping your God, then... It doesn't matter where they were born. It doesn't matter what color they are. God is saying, treat them as if they were your brother. Not only just your brother, but love them as you love yourself. Okay, that's, that's an that's a extra deep kind of love. Because even if you don't like yourself very much, uh, you have to go a really, really long way before you uh, hurt yourself. Uh, even even if you uh, cut yourself and you don't like yourself, you're still going to grab at it and try to keep it from bleeding and it hurts and I'm stopping. You know, you're going to protect yourself. So this is God's actual attitude towards the people, the foreigners, but the Worship of other gods, that's a different thing. So marrying strange wives, strange means that they are not, uh, it doesn't say that they're sojourners or strangers. They're strange. They're, they're messed up. They're, there's something wrong with them. They're after another God, they're after another thing, but they're pretty, so you wanted them. And really, it's a, a testament to God's, you know, really we shouldn't be looking at people when we want to get married. We shouldn't be looking at people just by how good they look. They have to, they should meet a certain criteria. They should, uh, you know, be a good person. They should you know, help you in your walk with God and 
do all these different things that, that are going to be a help in your life and not draw you away from your relationship with God. And that is exactly what the problem was in Israel. And if you don't believe me, I'll just go through this one little thing here. In Exodus 20, in verse 2, it says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children until the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Okay, now this is this is something that uh, that you're going to have to kind of pay attention to because a lot of people talk. Well, why is God punishing you know the children for the sins of the father? That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about the people that continually hate him. The third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And look at what he says in the next verse. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So when you look at this whole thing, you look at what Malachi is is pointing to. It's a situation that goes back very, very far. Even before the flood, remember the sons of God and the daughters of man? It wasn't about being a different race. It was about being a different God, a different religion, if you want to use that word. I hate that word, but yeah, you can use that word if you want. But it had nothing to do with them being lesser beings or lesser people. It had to do with their attitude and what God are they worshiping? You say, well, that's not very tolerant of you. I'm not talking about me. You know, if you want to worship whatever you want, I'll, you know, be nice to you. But if you ask me to worship your God, I'll tell you no. And if it causes a problem between you and me, then we'll go on our separate ways. I'm not here to try to force anybody into seeing what I see or doing it my way. What I am saying is that you should talk to God and let him tell you what it is. And there is only one God. As Malachi started out here, he says, have we not all one father? We do. We have one father and there is one God that created us. But the problem today as it has been for thousands of years, as people want to create uh, worship the creation more than the creator. And it manifests itself in many ways, and not just um, you know, making idols of stone and gold and jewels and things like that, but we make idols out of ministers. We make idols out of singers. We make idols out of actors. We make idols out of uh, sports players. When we look up to these people, and it's okay to have heroes. It's okay to have people to look up to, but you got to put them in the right perspective and the right relationship with God. God is the supreme power, the supreme being, the one and only God that is worthy of worship. And so many times people neglect to worship God in order to follow the whims of their heroes. I can't tell you how many uh, people that I thought were really great growing up 
And when the social media come out, when I was, uh, well, that's, I'm dating myself. When social media came out when I was in my 20s, or when I joined social media, and that whole thing started to kind of evolve, and you started to see the the viewpoints and the unfiltered thoughts of these people that you thought were so great, and you're like, I really don't like you. <laughs> you're kind of a mean person, or you kind of have some strange ideas. You're not the person that I thought you were because you were playing a part on a movie somewhere or you were singing a song that I thought was good. You know, it, you know, that whole, that old adage, don't meet your heroes. There's, there's some truth in that because you build these people up in your mind to be something that they're not. And when you see the reality of it, it crushes you. So the only real hero that you can meet that will not disappoint you was going to be Jesus. He's the only one that doesn't disappoint. When you meet him, he's everything that you expect him to be and more. He's loving, he's kind, he's willing to help. And he has the power to do all of those things. When you look at this whole sermon this whole section, and you look at it through the eyes of the church, what's happened? What has happened? We have walked away from God. And I'm not just talking about certain specific churches. I'm talking about church in the, the general sense. To worship other gods. Anytime you have a minister that you think is more important to understand what he's saying rather than what the Bible is saying, you're in a, a very precarious situation. And you make that man an idol. And you put him before God. And that doesn't make God very happy. And then you have people who are ministers that want to be the idols. And they want to be the gods of the people. And they'll set themselves up their own kingdoms. But this is not what God has in mind. You know, I grew up hearing this term. And it was thrown around a lot. You got to be faithful. That's right. You have to be faithful. And that one of the, the greatest compliments people could say about somebody is, oh, they're so faithful to church. Oh, they're, they're faithful, you know. They're always here. They're faithful. What are you faithful to? Are you faithful to a, a congregation, to a church? Because that's not faithfulness. That's loyalty. That's something else. Faithfulness is to God. And I can tell you this, you can be faithful to God and not be in a church every Sunday. I think you should go to church. I think it's good for you. You know, we we need to fellowship with people who are following God together so that we can see a lot of times God moves in our life. We can't see what God is doing in our life because we're stuck in it. But if we can watch God move in other lives more easily and they can see in us and we can build you, build each other up and say, oh, look what God's done for you. And they'll say, yeah, but look what God's done for you. And, and you start to build each other up. See, that's what church is for. Church is not for coming and listening to your favorite preacher and letting him beat you down every Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Tuesday night prayer meeting. It's about coming together and building each other up. Holding each other up. It's not about coming in, into the building and examining your flaws. Okay, you've got plenty of time to do that elsewhere. We come to church 
and you examine God. We can't come into church and be self-focused. We have to be coming in with our focus on God. Then God can move and speak to us and do all these wonderful things that he promised us. But we get so self-centric that, oh, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to be this way, and I've got to stand that way, I've got to talk this way, and I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I, 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 I. You know, there was a joke that I saw on a TV show a long time ago, and it stayed with me. So psychiatrist said he he uh, he read a book about a narcissistic opera singer and it was called me 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 and that's what we are that's what we do me 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 i i i i i this is a, this is my problem i got to do i got to do it's not it's him what he's going to do what he will do, what he's promised to do. It says he will finish the work that he began. That means you got to get out of the way and let him do it. You don't, you don't have a, you know, control over these reins anymore. That's what coming to God is, is saying, I don't have control. You take the control and I leave it all up to you. Well, God bless you. I hope this has been of some kind of help. And I hope it's been understandable. I know we went through a lot of strange things today. But um, I think it's necessary to uh, not only recognize the Word of God, but also recognize when men are translating the Word of God and what does it actually say. And what was their intent behind saying it that way? All right, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful day.